on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. Unless it is something that is so objectionable, that is so offensive, you know, to the, the proceedings, I don't object. I don't involve myself in opposing counsel's opening. And I don't do that because I object, let's say, to argumentative during the opening. What's going to happen is the judge, 99.9% of the time, will overrule me. And if they overrule me, or even if they sustain the objection, what the jurors now are doing is that they are now awake because it's the first objection in the trial. They're excited about an objection because they want to know what it is and what it's about. And now they're really listening to the next few words, whether it's overruled or sustained. They're listening to the next few words out of my opposing counsel's mouth. And now I've just given them even more attention and I've given them the floor more. So I stay as far away from objecting as possible. I'm polite. I sit back. I don't make a highlight of anything in their openings during their opening. And then in closing, I might attack some of their things that they said. That was Berglada, and this is May the Record Reflect. Hey you, this is Marcy Mangan, your host for the monthly podcast of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy. I'm excited to welcome the fabulous Brooke Lotta as our guest this month. Brooke is an assistant United States attorney for the Southern District of Florida. In her role as a prosecutor for the Department of Justice, Brooke prosecutes a variety of federal offenses, including human trafficking, drug trafficking, armed robberies, border offenses, fraud, and crimes against children. Prior to joining the United States Attorney's Office, she was an assistant general counsel with the Broward Sheriff's Office, training law enforcement officers on legal issues, and she was an assistant state attorney for the 17th Judicial District. Brooke has tried over 80 jury trials to verdict. And lucky us, she is here today to talk about her favorite part of trial, the opening statement. Here's our interview. Brooke Lotta, when you accepted our invitation to come onto the podcast, I had asked you what topic you wanted to talk about, and you said that you wanted to do opening statements because you love them. What do you love about opening statements? Oh, that's, uh, there's just, how much time do you have? Um, here's what I love. I, I think it's like the first 15 minutes of a movie. Um, and you're kind of sitting in the theater. You don't really know what to expect. You're on the edge of your seat. The first 15 minutes is going to tell you how the acting is, if it's an exciting scene, what the movie may be about. And I would say that opening statements uh, is just like that. It's jurors that don't really know what to expect. It's typically their first trial. And they want to know why they're here, what this is about, what to look for. And this is your one moment where they get to know you, they get to know your case, uh, and they get a little excited about it if you do it right. So that's what I think is pretty special about it. Well, you make it sound very exciting. What are the goals of the opening statement? And by that, I mean goals related to both the rhetoric and storytelling aspects, as well as the goals related to the law. 
the first goal that I have when I'm doing an opening is this. I, I want them to leave the opening and for them to like me. That really goes such a long way. I want them to leave opening saying, you know what? I just saw Miss Latta present. Uh, I like her. I trust her. Um, I want to root for her. I like how she speaks. I like how she's making me feel about it. And if they like me and they trust me and they're rooting for me, they're going to like my case and they're going to trust my case and they're going to root for my case. So that's definitely the first thing. The second thing is I want them to leave having a good understanding of what this case is about. I want them to leave saying, okay, Ms. Lada just summed this up for me. I know to expect. I know why I'm here. I know what the facts are. I know what the weaknesses are. And based on what Ms. Lada just told us, uh, I'm feeling pretty good about her side. So in addition to getting them to like me and trust me, in addition to previewing my case and showcasing what that's going to look like. Uh, lastly, I want them to, to be excited about it. And that's really the goal of it. So that sounds like quite a bit to take into consideration, all of these different aspects that you need to weave into your first presentation. So as you're starting to square away some time um, pre-trial to begin writing your opening, it might even be a little bit daunting because you've got all this stuff to juggle and you're not sure where to start. Um, I am a writer myself, and I'm always interested in hearing about how other writers start a writing project. And so I would love to hear about how you begin this new project of creating your opening statement. What does that actually look like for you and how do you do it? So, so many different People have different styles, and I'm probably going to shock you to tell you this, but I don't write out my opening statements, and a lot of people do. So what my craft would look like would be this. I, I have my roadmap of how I want it to look on paper. Then I take that roadmap, and I put headlines for the different chapters that I want to talk about with my jurors. So, for example, uh, my first headline when I'm writing out my opening might be something like my grabber. Is it going to be a quote? Is it going to be uh, a personal story? Is it going to be a defendant's admission, one of his statements? And then under that headline, I'm going to draft the bullet points that support it. Then I'm going to move to my next headline. And my next headline might say, all right, Brooke, tell the story. Then I'm going to, under that headline, put another bullet point, another bullet point, and another bullet point of the different areas that I want to cover under that story subsection. And I do that because while some folks like to write everything out top to bottom, right, start to finish every single word, I find that when I did that, when I first started practicing, what was happening is I would put it to memory and then I would mess up in front of the jurors and I would get a word wrong and they would sense it and they'd feel it. And it was so mechanic and robotic. And when I started to switch to the bullet points with my headlines, I found that I was being a lot more conversational. 
So that's how I put that to writing. And that's what that sheet of paper is going to look like. It's going to have my sections, my chapters. It's going to have some quick notes under each chapter of the different things that I want to hit and that I want to talk about. Um, and I'm going to play with that thing up until the morning that I give my opening. And it's going to be tweaked and it's going to be edited. Uh, and I will never give the same opening based on that sheet of paper more than once. It will always change in some very small way every time. So, yeah, that's interesting. You really are just outlining it and then making sure that you've got something that's easy to commit to memory rather than trying to, to, to be like an actor and memorizing all of your lines. How do you like to workshop it? You said that when you work on it and you're refining it, you tell a different opening every single time. So who gets to hear it and who are you working with and all of that? I don't typically practice it in front of other people. I only, I only, I only practice it with myself. And I know there's a bunch of schools of thoughts on that, but here's why. Uh, what I'll do is I'll play it over in my mind multiple times throughout the day, whether I'm driving to work, whether I'm coming back from work, whether I'm in the shower, uh, I'll play it with a little bit of music in the background and I'll just recite it to myself in my head. The only time I will ever perform it in front of somebody other than the jurors is this. And it's not a performance and it's not formal uh, and it's not like I'm ready to go. I will sit with a friend uh, and I'll sit them down in a chair and I'll say, let me explain to you uh, very calmly and informally what this case is about. And I'll just talk out my opening and I'll make sure that they don't have questions about the things that I'm talking about. I'll make sure that they like the things I'm talking about. At the end of it, I'll get some feedback of areas that I can tweak and work on and fix and correct. And then what I do is for the very first time in front of the jurors, they're seeing the only time that I am enunciating my words. Uh, showing a little bit of emotion, uh, being a little bit theatrical in a non-theatrical way. And they're the first people that get to see the full performance. And I find that in doing that, um, it's, it's more natural. And like we talked about earlier, it's less robotic and it's less rehearsed. And when we show jurors that we're not rehearsed, uh, it shows that we're just being more, uh, more natural. So, have you ever had um, a case where you have struggled to come up with how to open this, how to open your case, how to make your opening statement, how to tell the right story and get off on the right foot? How do you get over that? Where do you find inspiration? You know, that's when you kind of put like little focus groups out with friends. Um, and I'll throw something catchy out, you know, a different uh, a phrase. Uh, some of the cases that I've worked on, if it's a fraud related case, I'll bounce around different ideas and I'll come up with the, the concept of, okay, the defendant had a, a factory of fraud. You know, and then I'll say that to friends and then friends get really excited about it and they're like, I love it. I like it too. Uh, and then... Yeah, it's catchy, right? It's simple. It's short. It's concise. Um, sometimes I'll bounce ideas around and say, hey, listen, what do you think about this term or this phrase? And then friends and coworkers will say, uh-uh, it's not going to happen. Sometimes I'll steal ideas from, uh, from other people, from movies, from things off the internet. Uh, I think that's really what makes a great opening is just good stuff from other people that at 
that have showed that it can work and incorporating it and making it your own and putting your own spin on it. So that I find that's that's been pretty helpful to me. Yeah, it kind of is a it's like a shortcut because the jurors know that story and it makes it gives them something to hang your narrative on. Right. And they remember it. You know, they remember those different catchy things. Yeah. Great point. So in terms of media and entertainment nowadays, we've just become an increasingly visual society. Uh, I was thinking about how my grandparents would gather around a radio to listen to the news or to serial stories. And of course, FDR had his fireside chats during the Second World War. And so that's all auditory. And opening statements are a bit more like that. They're mostly an auditory experience that demands that jurors really pay attention and use their imagination. So in a visual society, how do you engage the imagination of these, I guess you call them visual consumers in this day and age, and then hold their attention throughout your opening? So that's a great point. And it's really hard to do because jurors get bored. Uh, and we don't get bored of ourselves because we love to talk and we like the attention, but jurors get bored of us and they want us to speed it up. And what I have found that has worked are a few things. First, something I always do is I talk to jurors uh, like they are a friend that I'm having a martini with and I'm sitting across the table from. And, and I'm just talking to that friend about something that's a very serious, very important issue. And I'm keeping it simple. I'm keeping it concise. So it's a it's a serious tone, but it's casual. Something else that I try to do is a little bit of theater is involved, a little bit of acting. Like any good movie, you know, we're captivated by people that uh, that move with purpose. So I try to do that in my openings. We're captivated by actors that can get emotional. Uh, or can get passionate about something. So that keeps our attention. Uh, we're passionate about movies or actors that change their tone. That's That's gone a long way. I found that if I'm really trying to emphasize a point to the jurors, I'll, I'll slow down and I will uh, say one or two words very quietly and they'll lean in a bit more and they'll you know, they'll, they'll really want to know what I'm saying at that point. So a little bit of acting goes a long way. Um, I also try to keep it really simple. And there's things that I don't do that I see a lot of other people do that don't work. Um, I don't thank my jurors. Jurors don't want to be thanked. I don't introduce myself in openings. The judge has already introduced me. I've already spoken with them in jury selection for an hour. Um, They want me to get right to it in an opening, so I don't need to say my name again or who I represent. They know that. Um, I also don't thank them for their service in terms of talking about how serious this is and why the jury system is so important. Because again, jurors just want to get to it. So those, the things that you don't do, really help and support the things that you do do. And that's gone a long way. Those are great points. So what are your thoughts on using visual aids during openings? I, if you, if this were on a video recording, you would see me hold up a sign that says a hundred percent. I am 100% using visual aids in my opening statement. Jurors get bored easily and they want to look at something. And when you, when you throw in a visual aid, 
That's a simple aid to follow. Uh, that's an aid where your words are going to provide context to it. Now they're both looking and they're listening. And I keep my aids uh, ultra, ultra easy and simple. For example, um, if I'm doing a trial involving a dangerous weapon uh, or a dangerous weapon being used, I might just walk up with the weapon and just let it sit there and talk about what that weapon did to somebody. Um, I tried a case one time that involved a woman throwing bleach on a baby that severely burned the child. And I, in my opening, I walked up and I had the bleach bottle and I just sat it on uh, the podium and I let it sit there for a couple seconds. And then I explained why that bleach bottle is going to be instrumental in this case and why they're looking at something like that and what that means and what that did. So if you keep it simple uh, and it's self-explanatory, um, it, it goes a long way for the jurors. Well, those are visuals that certainly have impact. Do you ever need to get um, clearance from the court before you use those in your opening? Yes. Yes. And you should. And there are some jurisdictions where you need to get clearance and some jurisdictions where you don't need to get that clearance. But here's why I, as a matter of practice, always get it. One, I always share it with the defense ahead of time. And I say, listen, this is what I'm going to be showing uh, in my opening. Do you have an objection? Even if the defense or that opposing counsel says, no, I don't have an objection, I'm still bringing it to the attention of the court. And I tell the judge, I'll say, judge, for the court's awareness, I plan on introducing this or rather showing it during my opening. I showed it to opposing counsel. They don't object. And I just wanted the court to be aware. And I'm going to do that because most importantly, I don't want my opening being interrupted. And if I don't show opposing counsel and I don't explain it to the judge, both of them or one of them or maybe none may jump up in my opening and say, Miss Lada, what are you doing? Or the defense says, I'm going to object. And now what has happened is I've taken my internally rehearsed opening and that beautiful, powerful moment that I have with this visual aid and that aha moment. And now it's ruined because there's an objection there's an interruption and my opening is paused and you're going to lose it all from there. So I typically always, always, always let the court know what's happening. I always let the defense know what's happening. And that way I'm giving an interruption free opening. I think that is excellent advice. Um, and it actually leads really well to my next question, which is whether you should ever object during opening your opposing counsel's opening. And what is at stake if you do? Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Unless it is something that is so objectionable, that is so offensive, you know, to the, the proceedings. I don't object. I don't involve myself in opposing counsel's opening. And I don't do that because if I object, let's say, to argumentative during opening. What's going to happen is the judge, 99.9% .9 of the time, will overrule me. And if they overrule me, or even if they sustain the objection, what the jurors now are doing is that they are now awake because it's the first objection in the trial. 
they're excited about an objection because they want to know what it is and what it's about. And now they're really listening to the next few words, whether it's overruled or sustained, they're listening to the next few words out of my opposing counsel's mouth. And now I've just given them even more attention and I've given them the floor more. So I stay as far away from objecting as possible. I'm polite. I sit back. I don't make a highlight of anything in their openings during their opening. And then in closing, I might attack some of their things that they said. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll be getting into whether to admit to the weaknesses in your case during your opening. But right now, I want to let you know about a convenient method for accessing Nita's free content. This podcast is but one way we like to introduce you to some of Nita's world-class faculty. Roglada is typical of the very practitioners, judges, and law professors who teach at our programs and write our textbooks. They are the very best of the best. Which is why I wanted to tell you about a feature on Nita's website that puts the expertise of our faculty right at your fingertips and absolutely for free. Nita On Demand is your own personal library of the 50 greatest hits of our webcasts, articles, podcast episodes, and blog posts on litigation and trial advocacy topics. Nita On Demand allows you to browse content and favorite it so you can return to it whenever you want. You can also peruse the What's New category to discover our latest media covering Nita's core four skills deposition skills, public service advocacy, and more. I've included the link to Nita On Demand in the show notes and invite you to have a look around to see what you can find. Now, back to my conversation with Brooke. So I have another should should you or shouldn't you, and that is should you talk about the weakest part of your case in your opening? You have to. You have to, because if you don't, then what's going to happen? And I'm the prosecution. So I go first, the defense will go after me. What's going to happen is if I miss the weaknesses in my case, a very artful and skilled defense attorney is going to get up there and they're going to say, members of the jury, it's funny that Miss Latta left out X, Y, Z, or it's funny that when Miss Latta talks to you about how the defendant gets out of the car on video and he's holding the gun, that Miss Lada failed to mention to you that the video does not show his face. And then you've lost all the credibility with the jurors. So I always, always bring out my weaknesses and I'll find a way to cushion them between strengths. I'll find a way to spin it lawfully in a favorable way. Um, and sometimes I'll just be straightforward and blunt and say, listen, we don't have DNA in this case. Or folks, you'll see a suspect on video, but you're not going to see his face. You will never see the defendant's face on a video, but here's how you're going to know that it's him. And that goes a long way. That gets me more credibility. Uh, that makes the jurors understand what to expect. So even if the defense doesn't correct my omission, when the jurors are watching the video, they're not thinking to themselves, Oh, that's interesting. She told me she was going to see the defendant, uh, but we don't see his face. It's all resolved if you bring it out at first. And you get to shape the narrative, not your opposing counsel. A hundred percent. You steal the fire. You steal the thunder. So how do you like to conclude your opening statement? Um, 
I know that sometimes attorneys will ask the jurors for the verdict that they want. Do you do that or not so much? I always, I always end on, uh, for those reasons, I'm asking that you find the defendant guilty. But there's one more thing that goes at the end of that. And then I'll loop back my grabber. Whatever it is that I started at my opening, if it was a one-liner, if it was a catchy term, I'll loop that back in at the very end. And I don't end on a thank you. So it would look something like this. I would say, members of the jury, for those reasons, I am asking that you return a verdict of guilty. I'll say my grabber, and then I sit down. And that's, that's what that looks like. And hopefully that looks pretty good. Okay. It sounds like it does. So openings and closings are often talked about together. And in fact, Nita offers an intensive course called Opening Statements and Closing Arguments. Why are they talked about together, in your opinion? Because a lot of times you're overlapping between the two. You know, in opening, we don't want to be argumentative, but you're making some conclusions. You know, you're throwing in certain things that you really want to just further emphasize in closing. So there's definitely some overlap. Both want to tell the story, right? Because when you start in opening with your story, there's a lot of time that goes between opening and closing. A lot of things happen. Witnesses take the stand. Objections are made. Evidence is seen. Testimony is had. Uh, recesses happen. And when closing comes at the end, then there's, uh, you know, you want to remind the jurors of, of the very story that either they forgot from opening or that they, we didn't put well as the attorneys in the middle of trial. So openings and closings are very similar in a lot of ways, but there's a lot of differences also to them. And some of those differences might be that in closing, we want to save good stuff that the defense or that opposing counsel can't fight you on throughout the trial. That closing, you want to save some of those moments where the defense or the opposing counsel doesn't get an opportunity to rebut. Closing, sometimes you want to be more detailed than you can be in opening because your opening shorter. It's been truncated. Uh, it's more concise. And your closing is really all the opportunity to talk about all that was said and all that was had during the trial itself. So, uh, so they're similar in a lot of ways, but they're very different in a lot of ways. So if somebody wanted to see a really good example of an opening statement and either it would be from an actual trial that they could look up on YouTube or something from a movie or a TV show, and there's certainly an abundance of those, are there any that you would recommend? You know, one of my favorite, I'm not going to say O.J. Simpson because everyone says O.J. Simpson, but I've got one better than that. One of the, the best opening statements that I've uh, seen and heard and listened to has been uh, the prosecution in the Oklahoma City bombing. And the prosecution uh, started from the perspective of a toddler, one of the toddlers who, uh, who had been murdered in the building. They started from the perspective of the toddler's mother, and they talked about how mom wakes up uh, on a Monday morning, and she gets her child ready for school. She dresses him. They brush their teeth together. They give each other a hug goodbye. And she talks about, or he, excuse me, the, the prosecutor talks about the mother dropping her child off at the daycare in the building that was bombed. And 
I love the active voice. It is a great, great example of, a, of an attorney using an active voice, which keeps you interested. It tells a story in real time. Uh, and then and then the prosecutor also talked about in that same opening the difference between how when the bomb went off that several kids were murdered and every single one of them died and while every single child died uh the defendant left the scene and he didn't even have uh eardrum issues because of the bombing that he set off because he took the time to put in earplugs. And so the point that I'm making is what was so incredible about this opening is the active voice, the perspective of a mother and her child, and the contrast between the death of a child with a defendant who walked away without a scratch on him. And when jurors hear that, they're picturing it and they're seeing it. And it's such an incredible mental vision. Uh, And I thought that was pretty special. Yeah, that's a lot of contrast, and you can't help yeah. but be affected by yeah. that. I will see if I can find that on YouTube, and if I manage, then I will include the link in the show notes. So we talked about what you think was a very impactful opening statement, and now I wonder if you have any of your own favorite opening statements that you've delivered. I know that you've been practicing for years, and so are there any instances where you walked out you walked back to the table and you were like, yep, I nailed that. That was a great one. Yeah, it doesn't happen a lot. Uh, but every once in a while, you get lucky with one that you knock out of the park. And uh, I did have that. I had that on occasion uh, that involved um, a, a sex crime on a child. And it was the neighbor that had been molesting uh, the the neighbor. They were friends. The neighbor was molesting the neighbor's child. And I stole uh, a lot of the same language and a lot of the same structure from that Oklahoma City bombing uh, opening. And I started from the perspective of my victim's mother uh, and how she found out and how they talked it out with her five-year-old son. And I found that during the course of my opening, when I'm talking about what happened to the son from the mother's perspective, how their mother felt about it, how she found out about it, what she did when she found out about it, that one of the jurors started crying. And that was one of the only few trials that I've had in an opening statement where a juror has cried. And if you can get a juror uh, showing some emotion it means that it's a direct response to the words that you're using and the structure that you're providing. So that's something that I have tried to carry in other cases. Sometimes it has worked, sometimes it doesn't, but that was certainly one that stood out. So Brooke, you are a member of the class of 2023 Next Generation faculty. And what that means for Nita is that we have selected three um, up and coming faculty members who've shown great leadership skills and the potential to become a really excellent trainer for us. And so we send those, those trainers during their next generation year all around the country to teach at NIDA, NIDA programs. And so I wonder if you could tell us where you have been in 2023 on behalf of NIDA. So I just wrapped up a couple weeks ago, the San Francisco training, which was incredible. 
It was awesome. I was there for about a week. We were doing all trial advocacy, basic trial skills, and that was an amazing group of people, amazing group of students, an amazing group of faculty. I also did several months ago, which was a super neat experience. I did the Scotland program on Zoom, uh, although I would not be opposed to going to Scotland if Nita wants to send me over there. But it was on Zoom and we were teaching basic trial advocacy to uh, the Scottish barristers, which was super interesting. And then for the rest of the year, what my foreseeable program will be will be in Florida. And I will be teaching deposition skills. Oh, great. So I am in Scotland, in Florida, and in San Francisco. And so far, it's been a really good year. Oh, that's great. Well, we're so glad to have you on our faculty. Um, Just listening to everything that you've said on your podcast, I know that you must be a real firecracker in the Nita classroom. So time for sign-off questions. So I've got two of them. And I'm curious to know what book you are currently reading. What is on your nightstand right now? So it's probably going to sound very strange to people that are not prosecutors or that don't do criminal law, but uh, it's a book called Red Crew, Fighting the War on Drugs with Reagan's Coast Guard. And I received it from uh, one of the prosecutors that I supervise, and she prosecutes a lot of our drug cases, and she is also in the Coast Guard as a JAG officer. So she said, you know what, Brooke, you're supervising me. I'm doing a lot of these types of crimes. Uh, You should really read this book. It really taught me how the Coast Guard came to fruition and how it was built and how we started going after uh, the different drug crimes as, uh, as Coast Guard individuals. So it's an interesting read. I'm really liking it so far. It's a little bit of work meets personal life uh, all at once, but it's been it's been very entertaining. Okay. And what TV show have you been obsessed with lately? I've got to say The Queen's Gambit, and I'm late to it because a lot of other folks have already seen it, but it's a great Netflix show about uh, a female chess player who's very young and she's kind of like this this chess guru. So that's been really fascinating and super entertaining. All right. Well, Brooke Lada, thank you so much for making even more time to join us here at NIDA. And um, I will look forward to talking to you again sometime. As will I. Thank you for having me. See, didn't I tell you Brooke was fabulous? Our thanks go out to Brooke Lada and to you for spending time with us at NIDA. Here in Studio 71, we very much care about ensuring that the time you invest in our podcasts and webcasts is worth it, and that you come away learning something new and useful. So, if it was worth it, throw some stars our way and rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also drop us a note at customerservice at nita.org. It means a lot to us when we hear from you. Until next month, when we do this all over again, happy lawyering. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita, we are advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community. Welcome to the community.